Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Vibe, Mind, Body and Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Binky Lumba, a real estate investor. I love connecting and educating people on how to create a passive income stream. And I am Raju Datla and I help realtors, real estate investors increase their revenue. I also enjoy connecting with people and building long-term relationships. We bring industry professionals, thought leaders, and experts to discuss how our mind and body plays a big role in our daily decisions, big or small. Through this podcast, our purpose is to make people aware and educate them to make wise decisions for their investments and take correct steps towards their entrepreneurial journey. Are you ready for a great episode? Please keep listening. We have a free gift for you at the end. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our show. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, our special guest is Jerome Myers. Jerome Meyer is a preeminent authority of dream realization, a believer that dreams can and should be real. Jerome left corporate America when he realized that his role offered financial gain, but little significance. He is the founder and head coach of Myers Methods and has been featured in Business Insider, Black and Price, and numerous podcasts. After building a high profitable division of a Fortune 550 company, Jerome decided to leave the rat race to get away from what seemed to be an endless slew of layoffs. He has developed a system for exciting corporate America and creating a life of impact. Today, he and his company help other Apex performers find their calling and live every day on a purpose by harnessing the power of his model for a centered life, what he calls the red pill. Jerome and his firms can guide any individual from a monotonous, uninspiring existence to a life of fulfillment and impact. Welcome, Jerome. We are so happy that you're here with us today. I'm glad to be with you guys. I I get uncomfortable every time I listen to that bio because it's like, all right, so what am I going to say that follows this up that actually makes that true? So super glad to be with you. And I think we're going to have some fun today. At least that's my expectation. Yeah. Let's talk about your childhood. What got you to be what you are now yeah i wanted to be a trash man right so (laughs) lonnie would come around the corner every thursday hanging off the back of the truck and i would go crazy me and my mom would probably be in the front yard most days 
I'd be playing with my Tonka trucks and I hear the trash truck coming and they hit the first house, they hit the next one. And then Lonnie would see me because I'm running to the street, ready to see him do his thing. He'd point at me, give me the wink and the fake gun with his finger. And he'd hop off the truck, grab it, flip the lid off, put a spin around like a quarter that you dropped, fall flat. And then he'd grab it, do a little pirouette, dump the trash in the back of the truck, and then spin it back like a Frisbee to the corner, right? And the trash is there. And he'd look at me one more time. And he'd pause for a second. And then he'd grab the lever and he'd pull it down. And the compactor would come in and crush the trash. And I would just go crazy, right? That was the coolest thing in the world for me. Right, is the fact that he got to be outside every day and make art. And so one of those particular days, I look at my mom and I said, Mommy, I want to be a trash man. <laughs> she looks at me. It's only a mom could do. And she says, baby, you know, that's probably not going to afford you the lifestyle that you want to live. You like your Jordans and your Jordache jeans and you, you like those name brand shirts. You like Nikes, right? And I was like, I do. And she said, well... If you choose that profession, you probably won't be able to afford those things. And, you know, it was right there that kind of my innocence was stolen, right? Because I realized, hey, people don't go to work because they enjoy it. They go to work because it pays well. And so then it was the pace to figure out how I was going to make money. And so I didn't actually give up on the trash man thing, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was just kind of floating. And then, I think it was my sophomore, no, it was probably my junior year in high school. I got the opportunity to do some job shadow when I was in this technical academy, kind of a magnet thing. And I know some schools around the country have like these centers, these specialty centers. And so ours was technology and I got to shadow some traffic engineers. And up until that point, I always thought an engineer was somebody who drove the train, right? Pulled the horn on the train. I didn't know that engineers could do software or uh, civil or mechanical or petroleum or any of that stuff. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, in the backyard, I used to build roads in the sandbox and I used to make buildings. And so, man, well, maybe I could go do that. Maybe that would be interesting. And so I just kind of put in my back pocket, kept going through, was doing pretty well athletically, doing pretty well as a student. And so one day I walk up to Mr. Ayers, he was my physics teacher. And I said, Mr. Ayers, you know, I don't really know what I want to do, but I do know that I want to solve problems. And he said, well, that's a good start, Jerome. I said, but I don't know if I want to solve problems with math and science or with people. And he said, well, it sounds like one would be engineering and the other would be psychology. What I can tell you, Jerome, is that one pays a whole lot better than the other. And I kind of looked at him. And then I thought about my mom. And I was like, okay, so which one pays better? He said, well, engineering is probably going to be twice as much as a psychologist starting out. And so it was set, right? I was going to go via engineer and it just so happened that I was interested in roads and buildings. So I chose civil engineering. And so I, I got the opportunity to, and the groundwork had been laid for this and I just had no idea that it was happening. And so my eighth grade year, one of my best friends growing up, his sister was attending a university and we went to homecoming at that university. Now, mind you, most people don't know about this if you haven't attended a historically black college or university, but the school that I went to has named their homecoming the greatest homecoming on earth, right? It's called Jiho. And 
every kid that goes to that homecoming, whether they're in middle school or high school, ends up applying to that school just so they can go to homecoming. Like the whole concept is I want to be on campus when homecoming happens and I'm willing to go to school here in order for that to be. And I was no different. So as an eighth grader, I would go back and I would talk to some of the other people who I was doing a summer program with and a weekend program. And I was like, yeah, I want to go to that school. I had no idea about majors. I had no idea about any other stuff. I saw the marching band and I saw all the girls and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So to bring this story full circle, the university was the leading producer in the country of African-American engineers. It has a world-renowned engineering program. Uh, Ronald McNair, who was one of the astronauts that died in the Challenger explosion, graduated from the university. And so it was like the alignment of the stars. And there was one thing missing, which was the opportunity to play Division I football. And they hadn't recruited me. My last game, I tore my ACL. And so all the people who were talking to me stopped talking to me. And on a random day after I had my surgery, they showed up and it's like, yeah, of course. He's got great grades. He plays pretty well. We just got to get him healed. We'll invite him to come in as a walk-on. And so my application was already sent in. Fast forward, I still hadn't got a scholarship yet. And so they felt like they could help me on the academic side. And so I was able to get a full academic ride mm. and got the opportunity to play football and study engineering. I had an amazing experience. I had internships in Africa and got the opportunity to just travel across the world and present research. And for me, that was just the catalyst that propelled me to other things that I, again, had no concept was actually possible. And so, you know, I kind of went through 22 years of life there. Can you tell us where did you grow up? And how did that impact your life? Yeah, so I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. I lived in a community and went to schools that were extremely diverse. We had people who were really wealthy, at least from my understanding of wealth at that age. We had people who were really poor, folks who were living in trailer parks and you know, single-parent households who were getting some government assistance. And that was my experience all, th all 12 years of education, right? I was always around people who didn't have anything and I was around people who had a lot. And that for me made me really comfortable talking and engaging with anybody. Your mom pointed out at your expensive case. <laughs> so where did that come from? Seems like that was one of the drivers. Yeah, so the expensive taste, I think it just came from exposure. So, you know, my mom grew up dirt poor. Like, like her mother was a sharecropper, to put things in perspective. And uh, she had 10 other brothers and sisters, right? And her dad wasn't a very nice man. And so the situation for her, she graduated high school. 18 or so left and wanted to get as far away from there as she could. So she joined the Navy, right? She joined the Navy and somehow she ends up in Alaska <laughs> from North Carolina. Right. And my dad 
from South Carolina to New York to the Marine Corps, he ends up in Alaska as well. So those two meet mm-hmm. and somehow they end up back in North Carolina, right? Crazy story. But they both grew up with very little and they wanted to make sure that I never experienced that. Mm-hmm. And so for her having some access to capital now, right? Because my dad was gainfully employed and for a while she really was too. It was the ability to go buy things that she couldn't buy. I I remember part of a story, but she was telling me something about a prom dress. I think they had to, she had to have her prom dress made at home or something, which like embarrassed her because she couldn't go to the store and buy it. And she wanted to make sure that her kid never had that experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I got Nikes, I had Jordan, I, I had the stuff and I was the only child. So it wasn't like we were trying to, you know, clothe five or six people. It was the three of us. And my dad was in the army. So he wore basically the same thing every day, right? He had his, his dress uniform. And, you know, my mom didn't have to go buy a bunch of professional clothes because I mean, her day was hanging out with me. Like that was her career. It was to figure out how to make me independent and successful. And so we just spent the time hanging out. And so I, I got the opportunity to spend a whole lot of time with an adult who was just pouring everything into me. She was a woman who thought she was going to go be a big, powerful corporate executive, right? So she did her time in the military. I guess she was, she got out. She was doing her associate's degree at night. Then she was going to go get the bachelor's and so on and so forth. And then kind of everything changed after I was born. And so the crazy part, most people, I've never told this story before, but, you know, my dad took off the last semester of her being in her associate's program to stay home with me so she could finish her degree. Wow. Nice. And like, most people have no idea that was happening. Now, there were so many mess ups that we had like i jumped out the stroller one day scraped up my face and all this other stuff right and so maybe that's why she decided that she needed to stay home with me because she didn't think i was going to make it with him being a daredevil but um yeah i mean it for me and i'm probably way off base on the question right but i think the taste really came from the fact that my parents experienced some pain from the fact of not having and they wanted to make sure that I never had to deal with that concept of not being good enough because I didn't have or feeling inferior because I didn't have. When did you go to Africa? At what age? Yeah. So the first time I went, it was, I was 20, right? I think it was, yeah, it was after, it was between, it might've been 21. It was 21 because it was between my junior and my senior year. And so, Africa changed everything for me because I saw a level of poverty that I didn't know existed in the world. And so I was working on a communications building at our embassy in Eritrea, which is in Eastern Africa. And the country was at war. It's the first time that I saw people off of a military base with machine guns. And so I wasn't able to leave the hotel or the embassy without a security, right? And they drove me everywhere and so on and so forth. And so that part was a little terrifying for me, but I I kind of got over it after a while. It just kind of was. 
And the thing that was kind of funny to me was they wore sandals, but they had these big guns. And I just, for the life of me, couldn't figure out like, okay, well, I'm just going to step on your foot and I'm going to win the fight. Right. Because like, you're, you're not actually protected, but anyway, so I, I go through that. And so there's two guys working with me, Solomon. And, um, I can't remember how to say his name, but it began with a G and every day. And I was actually looking at this picture yesterday, every day they would kind of walk to work and then they would walk back home, but they lived in shanties, right? And so they're these really um, frail metal buildings, right? Metal roof, metal sides, all tin, no AC, no running water. And they're coming over here because it's amazing work for them, right? And I'm staying in the Intercontinental Hotel. I'm eating steak and lasagna every night. And, you know, I've got the finest amenities that are available. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, what makes them so much different than me? And the only thing that I could come to after spending time with them is where I was born and who I was born to. And that was a real shift for me because I think so many of us take advantage of the opportunities that are given to us and not in a good way. We just accept and expect things that we didn't earn. We were afforded a privilege that we don't actually appreciate. And so it made me get really, really introspective, humble, thoughtful about who I was and how great I was because I'd done whatever, right? I had a strong GPA. I played sports, I had extracurricular activities, like all the things, right? But did that actually mean that my life should be this? When I hear all of the talk about how bad things are in America. And I think about the time that I've spent outside of the States. I get to a place pretty quickly where I lose tolerance because I realize how special the place that we live is. And no, by no means am I saying that it's perfect, but I just have a different perspective. And I think that has probably impacted the way I travel in general, because now, you know, I don't get excited about going to resorts. If I'm going to a foreign country, I want to be amongst the people so I can actually see and learn about that culture instead of what I'll call a whitewash experience where it's super luxury or uber luxury and you've got the finest of the finest and but that's just not how the people live. And I, I don't really understand the point of leaving America to be back in America or, you know, a more refined America than what most people live in while they're here. How did this experience in Africa, trip to Africa, shift the energies inside you or around you? That was yeah. when you were at 22 only, because after that, you kind of start writing your own script of your life. That's what it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I think at the highest level, I was able to see how big the world was, one. Two, it allowed me to see that everybody doesn't live the same way. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I began to pull on this string that unraveled to, we're programmed, right? So, for instance, when I was young, I used to practice Christianity. Well, the folks over there didn't practice Christianity. They practice Muslim or Islam, 
right? And so actually to live amongst people who live a different religion and have different practices led to me seeing the world a different way. And, you know, can I sit here and say somebody's going to go to hell? And I know you're not supposed to talk about religion, right? But can I say somebody's going to go to hell when I see that they're just great people, like who are just trying to provide for their family and their kids, like, and genuinely engage and interact with me in love in some ways that I've seen people who were professing the same faith as I had at the time didn't. Like, I just don't know how you can like reconcile to that and say, hey, I'm right, you're wrong. There's no way, there's no um, medium or discussion or discord that can happen because my book says this and your book says that. Like those things started to unravel for me. And I started asking those questions that um, kind of shake the underpinning that most things are built on and started seeking truth through my own experience and i believe that set me up to be able to one be willing to accept and appreciate people as they come because you know when you put on that lens of this is right this is wrong it's really really hard for you to accept people as they show up to you right it's really easy for you to cast judgment and say oh well this is right this is wrong versus oh that's interesting Tell me more, because I quickly learned that, hey, you, you probably don't have all the answers. You, you think you're smart, but are you really as smart as you think you are? And if you aren't, and this person can help you be smarter, are you doing the right thing by not listening to them? And every time I ask that question, are you doing the right thing by not listening to them? I always got to know. And so... I realized you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I started listening more. People ask me to talk a lot now, but that's not my nature. I really prefer to be quiet and learn from other people. But when people ask, because I've consumed so much and taken so much in and spent so much time and thought, I'm willing to share because it's my hope that I can help somebody speed up on their journey. And so that started pulling on that thread was the thing that set me up for the rest of the experiences that led me to the place where we started with the red pill and why the model looks the way it looks and why we are really focused on helping people exit the matrix. Because I do believe there's a whole another world out there that most people have no idea exists. Those who don't know about matrix, red pill, blue pill, look it up. So Jerome, when did you take the red pill? Yeah, I think I take it multiple times a day now, but I think the first time that I really took it was probably back in 2010. I was in a really low spot. I think I was going through some depression, even though I never saw a psychologist, because that's not cool, right? Mental health isn't acceptable. You're crazy and you're medicated, so you can't tell people that you did that. Or you can't go do it because you're scared you're going to get judged. Today, I think about things a whole lot differently. But back then, that's where I was mentally. And so I decided that I was going to try to figure it out on my own, try to kind of cope through it and grow through it. And just to really short, you guys don't have to go watch a movie, although I encourage you to. The red pill is a synonym or a metaphor for deciding to live in truth and particularly your truth, right? The blue pill is to live in ignorant bliss. And so a lot of folks have no idea 
how things are actually working. They just like the pretty marketing that they're presented and they participate in the program based on what the marketing package is. They don't actually want to know what it takes to do it. And a great example of this, and it's one that I don't really have the stomach for, but you know, for those who eat meat, they don't want to know what it takes to get from the farm to the plate. So I was in this pretty messed up situation state and I was in a job I hated. I decided that I was only going to practice the things that I actually had experience that made it real for me instead of just continuing to do what I saw my parents and other elders of the tribe do because that's the way we've always done it. And then this created issues in the workplace because now I was asking, hey, why are we doing it that way? Oh, well, we've always done it this way. Yeah, I get that, but why? And so it was then that I realized like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to live in someone else's dream. I think I have to go create my own and then be that architect, be that director, be that film editor and allow the people and attract the people to me where the storyline resonates with them. Hmm. And so if you've watched the movie, The Matrix, you've got Neo, he's asking these questions. He's doing the monotonous. I go to work every day. I come home. I go to work every day. I come home. I get challenged by my boss about something that's really stupid. And I, I deal with it because I know I need the check. And then I come back home. And then he meets a group of folks who are living outside of that framework. And boy, is it terrifying because you see everything and how it's working. But is that worse than living in ignorant bliss? And that's the question that I think the folks who are listening to this conversation, if you're still here, you have to answer. Like, is the fact that whatever you dream of, whatever you want to do, is that scarier than living a life where you don't actually actualize and become your full potential? Because for me, I knew for a fact that I was never going to become the person that I could become if I was staying within the context of this matrix that was created for me. And the matrix doesn't just have to be corporate America. It can be your mind. It can be whatever you fear. It can be anything, whatever's keeping you from being the best you. That's true. It's all around you. So this happened to you. After watching the Matrix movie or before the Matrix? It was after, right? So that movie came out in 1999. This is 2010. So, you know, it was 11 years later where I was going through what I felt like was a parallel process to what Neo was doing. Now, you know, at that time I was still in high school, right? I had no idea what corporate America was or the thought of the 40 years and then hopefully retire. And then maybe you live for 10 years after this whole concept of, you know, turning on cash flow now, right? Enjoying and having experiences, not trying to put whatever it is for most people, something north of a million dollars into a bank account so that you can draw down off of it. And hopefully not run out of money before you, your time on the earth expires. I 
I wish I would have known that sooner because I wouldn't have climbed the ladder the way I did. And I mean, even after that, like I didn't leave immediately. Like I was in corporate for six years after that moment where I realized that, hey, there's something different. I, I've got to move to a bigger place and do better things. But the red pill and all, so what, what was the first financial path you chose? Yeah. So initially I thought I was just going to make as much money as possible. So, you know, I, I lived in North Carolina and Virginia and, you know, I broke a hundred thousand dollars when I was 26. And so I was in a space where, you know, I had the golden handcuffs, right? But, and this is a huge, but the taxes situation is so much different when it's W2 income. And so people beat their chest about their hundred thousand dollars. But then if you actually do the budgeting and you see how much hits your bank account, that number is a whole lot smaller. And so I was like, okay, well I want to do real estate. And so I started fixing and flipping because that's what I knew could be done because while I had a job, I was doing some private money lending to folks who were fixing and flipping. And that turned out, I thought, to be a pretty good revenue stream. But I couldn't understand why anybody would pay that much money in interest until I actually saw the backside of the fix and flip deals. And it's like, oh, this is amazing. And then I realized that those fix and flip deals were only interesting if you wanted another job, right? Because you've got to be there to manage it, especially when you start out, because you don't have the systems and processes in place for the business to run itself. So I was like, I remember I was driving into the city. It was about five o'clock in the morning. The sun still was on its way up. And I literally said to myself, I traded in my nine to five for five to nine. (laughs) Right. And I was like, this is backwards. In fact, I think this is actually stupid. Right. Because I was working with a bunch of people who, you know, most of them didn't graduate from college and they, we're contractors and there's this, I don't even know what you call it. It's, it's a really bad joke, but it's like, yeah, well, they call it con tractors for a reason. Cause they're trying to con you, trying to get over on you. And I did have my experiences where a couple of people tried to get over and take advantage, but it was a lot of bickering. There was a lot of finger pointing. There wasn't a level of sophistication and maturity that I was used to experiencing from being in the project management and engineering space. So. I realized pretty quickly that I didn't really want the headache. I wasn't looking to be active. I wanted to figure out a way where I could buy a business, but have somebody run that business for me. And so the whole concept or idea of being uh, that owner, right? If you think about the cash flow quadrant, and I think most people have heard of it, but you know, you got employee, self employed business owner, and investor. I think most people are trying to run to the investor quadrant and that's amazing if you're wealthy, but again, I'm the son of a soldier, stay at home, mom, first generation wealth builder, business ownership is where I believe that you create wealth and then you take that wealth and you put it into the investor quadrant and create passive income from there. And so I was like, okay, how can I get this deal done? And so I'm sitting on the stoop of one of my projects back to my five to nine. Right. And a guy pulls up in a white Dodge Ram. And he's like, Hey man, let me check out your building. And he goes through, he likes the granite. He likes the countertops. He likes the sink. Cause I did the big gooseneck sink. I thought it was pretty spiffy. Um, looks at the bathroom and all the tile and all this stuff. And on the way out, he's like, Hey, 
you know anything about that building? I was like, what building? <laughs> he said, the one behind the Chimbo Mart. I was like, yeah, the one in Churchill, the 23 unit. Yeah, I tried to buy that a few months ago. He said, really? Well, I'm getting ready to make an offering. It's like, you're the guy I've been looking for because the banks that told me no said I need an experienced partner. And there's no way you're going to make an offer on this building if you don't have experience, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I got a little bit of experience. And so I go back and forth with them a little bit. And he asked me the same question three times and I didn't answer it. What are you going to bring to the table? I didn't know how to articulate what value I could bring to the table. I just told him, don't worry about it. I want to be in the deal because in my head, it's a no brainer. Like who wouldn't want me to be on a team to buy the deal and get the work done? I'm the hardest worker on the field. Of course you want me on the team, but he knew nothing about me and had no idea on whether or not to actually, he wanted, wanted to include me. And so he left and I thought the phone was going to ring. It didn't. It didn't. And the, the next week went by, the phone still didn't ring. And then the week after, a buddy of mine called me. He was like, hey, I just got asked to be the general contractor on this project. I told them that you wanted to buy it. The only way I'd be comfortable doing it is if you were in the deal with me. And so that was the opportunity for me to do my first joint venture apartment deal. And, you know, it was crazy because the summer, it probably wasn't the summer before I went to Africa, but um, sometime that spring, me and my buddy Duran were sitting on a stoop, very similar to when this guy pulled up at my fix and flip and we started doing math. And this is where the whole dream came from for me, right? I was paying 375 or 395. I was paying 395. I had two roommates paying 395. My buddy Duran downstairs had the same situation in his apartment. And we said, wait, that's like $1,200 a month between these two. And then we thought about all of the units in the complex. It's like $700,000. We've never seen this guy. We've never talked to him. He's got somebody in the office that takes care of this property. And so we were like, well, how do you decouple your time for money like that? And if you can, then what amazing lifestyle you can live. And we broke it back down. And you're like, well, do we really need 700? What if we could get 70? <laughs> could we live a really cool life if we could get 70 and not have to actually spend time working for it? And so When I decided to leave corporate, I was like, I want to go do that. I didn't have the right experience when I started, got turned away, met this guy, eventually got in the deal. And fortunate enough, I was able to articulate my value through our due diligence process and was able to be the asset manager on that deal. And that allowed me to get in a spot where my name was in the paper, got quoted, and it went from me knocking on the doors of banks and being told no to being in a space where they are happy and interested in offering me lunch so that they can tell me about their products and figure out what we're going to do when we're ready to refinance the property and see what else is in my pipeline. Now, I didn't know what the pipeline was before then. I, I thought it was, you know, where the gas comes, but that wasn't it. They want to know what other deals we had coming behind this one. And I didn't have any because I was just happy to get in this first deal, right? But, you know, that was kind of the journey for that piece of it. And so apartments are something that can't be outsourced. Um, It's a subscription model, which I think every business owner is looking for. You got some recurring revenue and it's a place that, you know, is inflation resistant. Um, 
just because you've got a hard asset. The thing that is probably the only downside is it's illiquid. And so once you're in, the only way out is through if you actually want to make money. And so that is the way that we decided that we wanted to create revenue. And then we've decided to do some ancillary things with coaching and education on the side because we take a different approach, right? We believe that people should be business owners instead of um, the investor piece starting out if they want to be active, right? I don't think most people are going to be successful enough to be successful at being syndicators. It's really hard. And I don't think most people are willing to work that hard. But, you know, if you found somebody who knows how to find deals, you found somebody who can make you money, you want to place your money with them because for all intents and purposes, they're a money manager. That's amazing. Do that. But if you just want to jump straight into syndication, I'm going to tell you that you're going to have a hard road to hoe and that you probably want to try a different route. And so we teach people the other route so they can figure out the mechanics of how to be an active operator. And then they can leverage that track record, that success from doing other types of deals over into their syndication. Because I'll be honest with you, you know, when I think about syndication, you got to stand up two businesses at once, right? You've got to raise money and you've got to be, figure out how to be an operator. And those skill sets are very different. And most people aren't talented in both. And so I want to teach you how to be an operator. Then you figure out how to market against your track record. Because I, I think that is how everything else works. This one amazing story. So if you have to look back and connect the dots, what is the secret of success? You know, a, a long time ago, I would say hard work. I think the secret to success is relationships, right? I think that most people look for transactions, right? They're looking for somebody to come give them something in return for something. And I believe that the relationships that you cultivate are going to be the thing that create opportunity for you. What's your one golden nugget, Jerome? It's not going to be a traditional golden nugget. But foundationally, it's my thesis on life, and I think everyone should hear it. And so if you made it to this part of the recording, surprise, you're going to get challenged and you're going to be responsible for something that you probably didn't show up here expecting to get. And that is that your dreams should be real, right? Not they can be real, not that they will be real, but they should be real. And it's up to you to do the work pay the price of admission in order for them to be real. And most people go through life sleepwalking. They go through life hoping that something will change and they don't really accept and know and own the fact that they are the biggest impact on what their life looks like and the experience that they have. They are, they get to decide how they're going to feel about whatever happens. They get to decide on how they're going to react or respond to what's going on in their world. And the minute that you take responsibility for that is the minute that everything in your world can begin to change. You have to believe that your dreams should be real. And once you actually believe that, you have a chance for them to be. If you've already turned your mind off and decided that they can't be real and, you know, that's childish or you're not being realistic, 
you are setting yourself up for a life of mediocrity. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you that you don't have to live that life. You don't have to live in ignorant bliss. You don't have to take a blue pill. You can take a red pill and have everything. I mean, absolutely everything. The life beyond your wildest dream. If you're willing to be aggressive enough to go out and pursue it. With that, we get to our rapid fire. Five questions, one word or one sentence only. Who is the most influential person in your life, Jerome? Parents. What is the best book you have read or recommend? Sizing People Up by Robin Drake. What's your biggest passion? Love. In one word, what does life mean to you? Significance. What is your favorite food? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I love fried trout. <laughs> All right, Jerome, how can people reach out to you? Yeah, jeromemyers.co. You can grab all kinds of great free stuff there. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. As promised, I have a free ebook for you, 7 Reasons Why Real Estate Syndication Build Long-Term Wealth. Please go to my website www.lumbainvest.com to download your free copy. Please tune into our weekly podcast Vibe Mind Body and Entrepreneurship. If you're listening live, please give us hashtag #live and if you are replaying please give our podcast hashtag #replay and give us a five star rating see you next week in the next episode with another awesome guest <laughs> <laughs>